Great to see you guys tonight. We're in Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 8. Hope all is well. Is all well? All right, okay. I mean, if it's not, you can talk to me after the service and we can pray and ask God to make it well. Um, I am uh, teaching from the English Standard Version, and so just just so you know, uh, I've made a shift and I explained this on Sunday morning a little bit. Uh, and um, I made the shift, not because I don't like the New King James Version. I love the New King James Version, um, and I deeply appreciate the King James Version. I've taught from the New King James Version for uh, a long time. You know, I mean, just many, many years. Uh, and I, you know, for myself personally, I felt like, hey, you know, I think, I'd, I, think I would like to... Um, study and teach from a new translation. The English Standard Version is an excellent translation of the Bible. Um, I went into some detail on um, the philosophy of translations and, you know, how we got the King James Version and the New King James Version off of the Texas Receptus. That was a collection of manuscripts by Erasmus. And then I also explained how all of the modern translations are based off of the critical text or the eclectic text Uh, which is also a compilation of Greek manuscripts uh, that date from the 2nd century to the 14th century. Uh, And so all of the modern translations, and I'm not saying like this makes these translations better, I'm just stating a fact here, Um, all of your modern translations are based off of that collection of manuscripts. Uh, And then, of course, remember that the translations you use also have a different philosophy behind them. Some are word-for-word translations, like the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version. Uh, Then, of course, back to the Texas Receptus, the King James Version, New King James Version, uh, word-for-word. And then the other translations are dynamic equivalents or thought-for-thought. And so uh, the people translating are seeking to really uh, bring into the translation their view of what the original writer was intending. Uh, and so that would include uh, NIV, uh, New Living Translation. And, you know, uh, each of those translations uh, are um, thought for thought in an increasing way. So um, just to let you know, you know, that's kind of the idea behind the translations that uh, you have maybe in your hand tonight. Uh, all the translations of the scripture, I think, are really solid. My personal view is that English Standard Version, uh, New King James Version, NASB, if you're going to really study the scripture uh, from a word-for-word perspective, those are the translations that, that you want to use. Uh, I am going to be teaching, and so is our team, from the English Standard Version. In those places where there's some really significant difference, I'm going to let you know what those things are and If you want to keep your New King James Version, if that's what you use, um, go ahead and do that. You know, you can read along and you can study along and and you can hear some of the variations. There's a whole science behind variants in translations and the vast majority are, um, you know, insignificant is not the technical term that they use, but they're not significant variations. We're talking about um, conjunctions and, and, and things like that. So um, you'll be able to see some of those differences. On the other hand, if you want to get an English Standard Version, I um, would encourage you to do that as well. We're going to post on our website um, the one that, that I use. Um, personally for me, you know, I just... I just um, 
I don't really have a reference Bible any longer, you know, with commentary in the notes. Mine is just the scripture, and so uh, if that's what you're looking for, um, we will give you a link for that. And then, you know, if you're married and you're a dude and you're buying one for yourself, I want to encourage you to buy one for your wife, too, just in case um, she wants to read from it. And that was a personal request someone gave me tonight to announce, so, so, so there you have it. We're in verse 22 tonight. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll study the scriptures. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you, God, that we have direct revelation from you through individuals that you inspired. And God, what we have in our hands today, tonight, is living and powerful. It's, it's truly sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, through your word, you desire to progressively reveal yourself to us, to enlighten, as Paul said, our eyes of understanding in the knowledge of God. And Father, we, as Tristan prayed tonight, we open ourselves up. We avail ourselves. God, we unlock every door to our hearts and our minds, and we pray that your presence would invade us and fill us And tonight, your word would speak to us that you would, as you so faithfully do, time and time again, you'd meet us where we're at and you would give us a word, the word that we need to hear tonight. And Father, our hearts are ready for that. And so we we pray tonight that you would do this through the power of your Holy Spirit, for we believe him to be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. I think, I think sometimes we have this assumption that divine revelation uh, comes all at once. And when I say divine revelation, I mean I'm talking about God revealing who he is, God revealing how he works, um, God revealing what he is doing in our lives. Sometimes I think, you know, this may be like a, too broad of a generalization, but I know I feel this way sometimes. Um, If it's not an assumption, it's a hope that God's going to just download all of it at once. You know, we want the whole shebang. We want the whole enchilada. We We want God just to deliver it all. And, you know, whether that's because we see stories in Scripture where it appears that individuals just got the divine download all in one shot or whether we live in a culture that uh, lends itself to this type of attitude, you know, just the instantaneous, this is probably not fair to say it like this, but I'm just going to say it anyway and hope you give me grace on it, Um, but that instantaneous, uh, we don't really want to work hard for it, we would just rather have it all delivered to us type of attitude, Um, and you know that our whole culture is built around getting everything in the moment that we want it. And sometimes I think that we think that's how revelation, revelation from God works. And, you know, honestly, there are times. There are times where God just really does give us that very clear picture or that comprehensive download, but that is mostly not the case. I think that revelation from God comes in doses over the course of time. The, the, the phrase I'm going to use tonight is progressive revelation. God gives us progressive revelation. Like I, I just said, it comes in doses over the course of time. Um, and I think the scriptures 
bear witness to this. And let me, just say, let me just say this before I talk about the scriptures. I think this is important because, you know, sometimes we feel bad. Sometimes, it's, sometimes we can be in a position where it's like, you look at all the revelations someone else is getting, and you're like, well, what about me? You know, I mean, what's wrong with me? Why am I not getting it? Why does my life or my experience not look like their experience? And you know, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. If you want your joy stolen, start comparing yourself to other people. And, you know, the pro- one of the problems with comparison is you don't have the whole story when you look at other people's lives. Like, you can come to conclusions based on assumptions of what you think is going on in their life, but you know, you just don't know the whole story. And so, so I, I just say this to you tonight to maybe set some of you at ease, you know, because maybe the whole process of discovering who God is or maybe discovering the process of the thing that you are thinking God is doing in your life has been this journey that's extended over the course of time and you think that there's something wrong with that and I'm just saying to you tonight, there's something right with that because that's the way that God works. You know, God worked that way in Philip's life as Philip was called out of Samaria, this mighty move of the Holy Spirit and and, you know, God spoke to him through the Holy Spirit to go down to the deserts of Damascus. He gave one step to Philip for Philip to take, and, and that was it. It wasn't the whole story. And so when Philip got down there, it's like he's waiting for more information from headquarters, right? And he gets more information from headquarters as he sees this Ethiopian eunuch cruising in his chariot, and the Spirit of God says, run up next to the chariot. You guys know the whole story, how it goes, right? That's progressive revelation, That's God revealing to Philip over the course of time, God not giving it to to him all at once. You think about an individual like Joseph. Joseph had a piece of the revelation. He had had dreams. There was an inclination, an idea of what it was that God was going to do in his life, but God did not tell Joseph everything that he was going to do. And you guys know, like, if God would have said to Joseph, hey, by the way, this is going to be how it rolls, and you're going to be in prison, and, you know, you're going to get stabbed in the back, and you're going to get falsely accused, Joseph probably would have run in the other direction. I mean, there's good reason uh, for why God gives revelation progressively. I think about Esther, of course, as the story played out in her life. All of a sudden, it became clear, became clear to her why she was in the court of the king, that God had raised her up for such a time as this. Um, some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor, what about Saul of Tarsus? You know, that's an example of just like the divine download. And I would say, no, it's actually a, an example of progressive revelation because when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, You remember, Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Like, I've been working. I have been working in your life. I've been convicting you. There has been revelation. You have been resistant. And so in the process of the journey, what happens? Well, he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus. But he didn't have all of these, you know, books of the Bible in his heart at that moment. He spent years in the deserts of Damascus, receiving sweet revelation from God through the Holy Spirit, so that over the course of time, he was able to, as the Spirit inspired him, he was able to pin the Holy Scriptures, a good portion of the New Testament. So I'm, I'm just saying tonight, and this is going to become obvious as we get into the Bible, which we will, I promise, in just a minute, I'm saying to you that revelation is progressive, and that's part of the process. God does it for a reason. 
I think some of those reasons are it encourages us to pursue. It encourages us to pursue. Like if it all happened at once, you know, we probably would just get really comfortable and we would stop pursuing God, but he gives us little pieces at a time. And, you know, it's like a, and this is a horrible illustration, but it's like a good steak. You know, you have a bite. You don't just cram the whole steak into your mouth at once. I mean, some of you do. I've seen you eat, but... But, but most of us, we take, we take a bite, and the bite's so good, it keeps us coming back for more, right? I mean, and I think that's, that's the way revelation is. It encourages us to pursue God. It's like we open the book, and he reveals himself to us, and it, it produces this hunger in our lives for more. I think it encourages us to trust, right? He keeps us in a place where we have to trust him. He gives us just enough for what's in front of us. His word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's just a single step at a time. It compels us to encourage, to trust him. I think it's progressive because, as we're going to see tonight, uh, through this progressive revelation, he tears down false assumptions. We have ideas and attitudes and, and ways we think God works, and you know he deconstructs those false assumptions over the course of time. I think that it gives us time to digest. You know, thank God he doesn't download it all at once on us because, you know, it's just so much that we really do need time to think it through. And then finally tonight, and I know, I know that's kind of a comprehensive list, but I don't think that he gives us all of it at once because it's a reminder that we're never going to get to the place where we know everything. None of us. None of us tonight are able to say that we know everything that there is to know about God. And that progressive aspect of revelation should be this continual reminder to us to keep us in a humble place that God is vast and he is eternal and he is infinite. And there is, there is never going to be a time where we can just systematize everything about God, put it in a nice little box, wrap a bow on it, and say, hey, you know what, we know everything that there is to know. In fact, the more, I think some of you know this, the more you grow in your relationship with God, the more you realize you don't know. That's the way it should work. It's like, oh man, you know, you think you know something, then God drops a bomb and it's like, man, maybe I didn't know that like I thought I knew that, or maybe there's a new aspect that I never considered before, but you just realize that our knowledge is a sliver, right? It's just a sliver. And as you grow in your knowledge, it's not that you become so prideful about what you do know, you become aware of all that you don't know. So the point tonight for all of that is this, the disciples were just beginning to understand who Jesus was. We're going to see this tonight. There was revelation that had been given to them that was very clear. They were able to articulate who it was that Jesus was. But there was still a lot of confusion about what it was that Jesus was supposed to do. And they had this assumption. We're going to see tonight that they're able to articulate that he was the Messiah, he's the Christ. But when it came to his earthly mission, there was a lot of misunderstanding. They, they just didn't get it. You know, they had an assumption that, that the Messiah, when Messiah came, uh, especially in this particular first century period, that Messiah was going to bring an exodus for the Jewish people like Moses did when the Israelites were living in Egypt. You remember that story. God raised up Moses. Moses went to Egypt. The Israelites were living under just severe conditions, harsh 
bondage. Pharaoh was a dictator. He was brutal and cruel. And there was an exodus. There was a deliverance, right? There was a a redemption that God brought through Moses. And the first century Jew was expecting Messiah to do the same thing because they were living under these horrible situations and circumstances uh, because of the oppression of the Roman government. And so instead of Egypt, it was Rome. Instead of Pharaoh, it was Caesar. And so there was this expectation that when Messiah came, he was going to bring a political upheaval, a governmental upheaval, and he was going to overthrow the Roman government and establish the nation of Israel above all other nations in a political um, governmental sense, in an earthly sense. And Jesus is going to deal with that misunderstanding. And you know, the interesting thing is he deals with it in such a unique way. The Bible says in verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Like already you're thinking, I mean, this is, this is different, right? I mean, he doesn't just heal that guy right there, takes him by the hand, leads him out of the village, gets a little crazier. And when he had spit on his eyes, I don't know what translation you're using, but it probably says the same thing. I mean, imagine being there for this. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he, that is this blind man, looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, and this is interesting as well, do not even enter the village. So the very village that he walked him out of, he said, don't go back there. Now, for those of you who are students of scripture, you know that um, this particular story is, is only in the gospel according to Mark. So there are some unique aspects to the story. Number one, um, this is the only uh, place that we find it in all the gospel accounts. And number two, it is the only two-stage miracle that's recorded that Christ did. All of the other miracles that Jesus did were single-stage miracles. Um, This one's unique in that it happens in two stages. Um, Not to mention, just the method that he uses is very interesting. It's, It's just different. Like, I'm sure the disciples, I mean, at this point in time, were thinking, he just spit in this guy's face. Right? He just, imagine tonight if I'm like, hey, does anyone need healing tonight? Come on up. And I just like spit in your face. I mean, it, it would be a problem, right? I mean, we probably would need to call the police because, because you'd hit me for that. There's, there's nothing more derogatory than spitting in somebody's face. But, you know, Jesus got away with it. And he got away with it because, because he ultimately healed the guy. But the interesting thing here is that healing doesn't come all at once. Uh, like I said, He spits on his face, places his hands on his eyes, and then asks him a question. I mean, this is a rhetorical question. He knows what the answer is going to be, but he's drawing this individual to this place of healing, which ultimately is going to be a metaphor for what he was doing in the lives of the disciples, and so he says, what do you see? And he's, it's blurry sight, right? I mean, he can just make out individuals that look like trees walking. And then he takes the next step, and he places his hands on his eyes. 
And the guy opens his eyes ultimately, and he can see everything clearly. So there's a personal aspect to this. Obviously, there's no doubt about it. Jesus was looking to minister to this man's personal needs. Um, Everything I'm going to say after this does not mean that Christ was not concerned with this individual and the suffering that he was dealing with because he absolutely was. The man mattered to Jesus. The need was something that Christ wanted to meet Not just so that he could teach a lesson, but because this person mattered. And let me say this as I say that. You matter to the Lord. You matter to the Lord. You know, sometimes sometimes we have the weirdest way of counseling people. You know, we go through something difficult and someone comes along and says, well, you know what, all this suffering in your life is for somebody else. And it's like, "That that does not help me, right? I mean, you want to spit in that person's face when they say that. No, I'm just kidding. You don't. But, but, you know, sometimes the way that we counsel people, you know, and I'm not saying that there's not an aspect of what God is doing in our life is meant for other people. I do think that that's true, but we also need to be careful with that because God cares, God cares about you. God cares about what you're going through. God cares about the details of your life. Everything he does in your life is not just a lesson for somebody else, right? I mean, you matter, and the circumstances of your life matter to the Lord. This is why you can be anxious for nothing, but you can bring everything to him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and give your personal request to the Lord knowing that he cares for you personally. But as I say that, I want to also say that this is an illustrative miracle. Like what we're going to read in the rest of uh, this chapter is not disconnected from what Christ is doing miraculously in this individual's life. And oftentimes when Jesus performed a miracle, he was using it as an illustration for his disciples. For instance, when he fed the 5,000 and he multiplied the loaves, remember he was also teaching his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And so oftentimes what Jesus would do is he would work this miracle, he cared for this individual, but he would use the miracle as an illustration for his disciples. And I think, listen, as a teacher of God's word, I think, man, how cool would that be? How do I illustrate my teaching? Well, I got like a pop pop culture story. Uh, I got a personal example that I might use. I might tell you guys a joke. But Jesus, he performs miracles, Like, he does something supernatural. He does something extraordinary to make his point. Kind of like, hey, just to make sure you guys understand what I'm saying, I'm going to cause this blind man to see. And I think, man, what an awesome capacity for a teacher to have. And the reality is this. As you study the scriptures, what you discover is that physical blindness is a biblical metaphor for spiritual blindness. So you'll see as you study Uh, particularly the gospel accounts that oftentimes that person who's physically blind, that's just a metaphor, it's an illustration for the reality of spiritual blindness. And when Jesus was giving sight to those who were blind, it was a spiritual metaphor for the revelation of God. People who were once unable to see are now able to see in a physical sense And when the revelation of God is given to us, we at one point in time were spiritually blind concerning him, but because he has given us revelation, we now have insight. We now have the capacity to see. And so what Jesus is doing here is laying the groundwork for some assumptions that his disciples had made concerning his mission 
that he is going to deal with. You'll notice here, as we mentioned, that Jesus takes the man outside of the village, and then he tells him not to go back to his village. Um, And I'm just going to totally allegorize this and make an assumption here, Um, but I I do think there's meaning to this, and you you can drag this into uh, the trash bin if you want to, because this is just my opinion. But because this is an illustration that Jesus is giving to teach his disciples specific things about the Messiah, I think I think what he is saying to this individual, you know, has importance to the disciples because there was a way that they were viewing the Messiah that he did not want them to go back to. So let me just say it like this. He takes this blind man, takes him out of the village, goes through these, you know, two stages of revelation, two stages of healing, and then says to him, don't go back to that place. Don't go back to the place that you were Um, Because I brought you out of that, and there's this new thing that I'm doing. And what he's going to do to his disciples is the very thing, right? He is going to give revelation to them in two stages concerning himself. He's going to deconstruct false assumptions. And the illustration here for this man coming out out of the village is the same thing for his disciples. Don't go back to that place where you put me in the false framework of first century Judaism and all of the expectations that they have for Messiah, because the expectations that they have for Messiah and the earthly kingdom they're expecting me to build is not what I've come for for the first time. So, you know, you can take that or you can leave it. Stage one, Revelation, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So stage one, Revelation, right, deals specifically with, and, and of course, this is Christ leading his disciples, who he is. They have the miracle on their mind. I'm sure they're wondering. They've never seen a two-stage miracle ever before, and so they're probably thinking, maybe even discussing, like, what was that all about? What was, you know, is his, you know, did he not have enough food for lunch? Is his, you know, power waning? Those are probably things they weren't thinking. But they were probably trying to figure out why was it that this was a a two-step miracle instead of just a, a single shot. And so with that in mind, He asks them a question, who is it that people say that I am, right? And this is, you know, this whole issue of various ideas about who Jesus is is something we deal with in our culture today, and it was something that the disciples dealt with in their generation as well. There were a lot of ideas floating around about who Jesus was, and so the disciples were just honest about that. Well, listen, the word on the street is some people think that you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some think that, you know, you are Elijah, who has come back, and then maybe some of the other prophets. We know from the other gospel accounts that there were some who were saying that Jesus might be Jeremiah. So there were just a lot of opinions about who Jesus was. And, and so he turns the question to them personally, which, by the way, is so important for us to, to remember. Like, it's not all about, and this is not the focal point of tonight's message, but it's not all about what other people say about Jesus. The most important thing for us to be able to answer is who we believe Jesus is. 
That's the most important thing. Tonight, you know, maybe you're a seeker and, and you, you, know, you have all these ideas about Christianity and, and you roll into church from time to time. And for whatever reason, right, for, for some of you it might be, well, you know, you're just um, you're checking a box or maybe you're pacifying your conscience or, you know, you're interested in spiritual things, but, you know, you just don't want to go too deep. And so, you know, you circulate among religious places and, and you have ideas about what people say about Jesus. You know, you know what the neo-atheist says. You know what the new ager says. You know what the Catholics say. But really the issue tonight is, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? You have to answer that question for yourself because the Bible says one day you're going to stand before him. In fact, the scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And how you conclude that particular question, who do you say Jesus is, in this life is going to have ultimately the effect on how you are received in the life to come. And so Peter answers, and Peter says, well, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Now listen, this is a huge deal for Peter to say. I think we read this, and it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's come to some basic conclusions, and, and it is a big deal, but it's probably not a big deal. And no, it was a huge deal for Peter to speak on behalf of of the disciples. And at this point in time, Peter is the spokesperson. And um, it is widely agreed that when Peter says, you are the Christ, and then if you take Matthew's account and synthesize it, he also says, you are the son of the living God, that he's not just speaking for himself, but he is the spokesperson for the disciples. And, and so he's saying, listen, we believe, we believe, we've concluded that you are Messiah. I mean, this is the biggest deal that could possibly happen to any Jew in any generation because they'd been longing for, they'd been waiting for the coming of this Messiah. Every generation prayed and hoped that they would be the generation that would see with their own eyes the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who was selected by God to redeem them from their sin and from their bondage and to usher in that golden age. And so when Peter says this, man, it's like you've got to understand this is like the culmination of the whole story of the Old Testament all coming together in one moment. This is like a crescendo. This is an exclamation point. This is the biggest thing he could say. And, and, and Jesus says to Peter in another a gospel account, in Matthew's gospel account, he says, man, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, this is divine revelation, like, you didn't get this just because you looked at some evidence and came to a conclusion. No, this understanding that you and the disciples have that I am the Christ has come from God. It's not flesh and blood that has brought you to this conclusion. It is the Holy Spirit who has given to you divine revelation. You were living in a place of blindness, and now you're able to see. And it's such a huge step for the disciples to be able to convey this and to communicate who Jesus was. They got that. They got the first stage right, but they also carried with their understanding of the Messiah all sorts of false assumptions. And so Jesus is going to deal with this. Check this out in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Is that the audio Bible? <laughs> okay. 
Hit pause for me. Thanks. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, so stage two of Revelation is about the mission, right? Let me paraphrase it. Um, Jesus is kind of saying to his disciples, hey, listen, you got it right concerning who I am, but you have it wrong concerning my mission. You are carrying assumptions. They're ideas. And I explained to you what the first century Jew was thinking. There are, are ideas that you have about my mission that are just incorrect. And listen, before we're too hard on the disciples, you know we carry assumptions about Christ as well. We carry false assumptions about Christ as well. In fact, sometimes growing in our relationship with God is growing in the process of understanding those areas that we misunderstand, you know, or that we think that he is supposed to do this particular thing in our life that really isn't even a promise in Scripture. For instance, sometimes I think when we come to Christ, we have this idea that our life is going to be perfect. Right? Sometimes I think when we come to Christ, we, we have this idea that things are just going to be easy. Any of you think that? Like your life is a mess, it's super difficult, and, and you're like, oh, I'm going to put my trust and faith in Jesus, and it, it's just going to get easier. And then you put your faith in Christ, and what happens? Like it's a little harder. You know, sometimes it gets really hard, and you're like, man, this is not what I expected. I had, I had assumptions that this was going to look a lot different. Or you think, man, everything, every struggle is going to get fixed. Right? I have these addictions, I have these battles that I'm dealing with, and you know, 100%, we come to the Lord and we ask him to relieve us of those things, but you know, sometimes there are thorns in our flesh that persist. Sometimes there are. And tonight, if you're in a place where there's a thorn in your flesh that still persists, don't think that, don't think that you're not saved or that something might be wrong. I mean, something could be wrong, but the truth is this, we have... We have an old nature of, of flesh that we all have to wrestle with and deal with and bring under the submission of God's Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we have the assumption that every infirmity is going to be healed. Sometimes we have the assumption that our family is going to be the perfect model of godliness, right? I'm going to believe in Jesus and then, and then everybody is going to be perfect in my family. I think uh, sometimes we have the idea, the assumption that we're never going to struggle financially. I think, you know, we have the assumption that our ministry is always going to be fruitful. I think we have the assumption that when we believe in Jesus, we'll always be loved and accepted. And, and the fact is, uh, we carry some of those assumptions. And when our assumptions about what we think Christ is going to do in our lives are broken, our, our faith can be shattered. Our faith can be shattered when there are assumptions that we have and we're expecting Jesus to do something that he has not clearly declared that he's going to do in his word. Oftentimes our faith can be shattered or like let me back off of that just a little bit. Sometimes our faith can be shaken and the problem isn't that Christ has failed us. The problem is that we've been carrying these assumptions that were wrong in the first place. You know, when you're in that spot and you have, you have assumptions that you've been living with and carrying and somehow something that you're expecting doesn't come to pass, you know, what, what do I do in those times? I have to start with, God, I know you're not wrong. I know you're not wrong. I'm not, I'm not going to start with, God, you're wrong or, God, you failed or, God, why didn't you? I have to start with, God, you know, 
you know that I love you and that I believe that you are good, that you love me, that you're faithful, and you always do the right thing. Help me to understand where my misperception is and lead me and guide me through this. I think, you know, life with the Lord is really a process of growing in our understanding of who God is and how he works and how he chooses to do things. And I think when, when Jesus says these words to his disciples, like he knew it was coming, right? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then check out what Mark says. And he said this plainly, right? He said it plainly. Like Mark, probably from Peter's account, is just recounting the reality that he said this as clearly as he possibly could. There was no mistaking. And I think Jesus knew as he dropped this bomb on his disciples, he knew it was going to shake them. The whole idea of him suffering, the whole idea of him being rejected by the religious leadership and then ultimately killed and then the whole resurrection piece, you know, at that point probably they just heard his voice trailing off. Because this was not what they assumed that Messiah was going to do. And we know that that's the case because Peter, Peter, God, God love him. God, God, bless, God bless the guy. You know, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Super strong word for rebuke here. And then Jesus turns and sees his disciples watching Peter rebuke him, and Jesus returns Peter's rebuke with a rebuke as well and says strongly to Peter, like, you know, and I know we hit this all the time with this particular story. It's like, on the one hand, you have Peter with this beautiful revelation. You're the Christ, the son of the living God, and then, you know, just 30 seconds later or 30 minutes later, whatever it is, he's like rebuking Jesus. You know, I mean, the guy totally has it right in one minute and then is an absolute failure in the next one. Um, and if you can relate with that, raise your hand tonight because that's one reason that we love Peter, right? But Peter has a problem. Peter's got an honest issue with what it is that Jesus is saying to the extent that he goes out of his way to reprimand the Lord. He reprimands the Lord. Like, I mean, you wouldn't have wanted to be there for this moment. But, but the honest truth is sometimes we reprimand God in prayer. We may, not we may not be with Christ physically rebuking him, but you know, sometimes when we struggle, we reprimand the Lord and what he's doing in our prayer relationship when our assumptions are broken or when he doesn't come through the way that we think he should come through or when there's something about our life spiritually that we just don't want to deal with or to go through. And the reality is this, Peter's listening to Jesus talk about what he's gonna go through and he's ashamed. He's ashamed of it because Peter has higher and loftier plans for Jesus. He's like, no, wait a minute, you're, you're gonna overthrow the Romans. You're gonna overthrow your enemies. You're not gonna be overthrown by them. You didn't come here to lose, you came here to win. And, and what does Jesus do? He says, Peter, listen, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not on the things of God. Your mind is on the things of man. You're seeing with human eyes. You're seeing with eyes of the flesh. Your expectation is that I'm going to establish some earthly political movement, and that's not what I came for. 
I didn't come to establish a physical government. I didn't come to overthrow other countries or political parties. I came to save souls. I came to restore people. I came to rescue those who are lost. Your mind is set on the flesh, and my mind is set on the spirit. God, help us to keep our minds aligned with God seeing the kingdom that he wants to establish, not in an earthly sense. And I'm, I'm talking about uh, political powers and authorities in countries. I'm talking about the kingdom of God in the hearts of men and women. That's what he came to do the first time. And I think what he's dealing with with, with Peter is, is almost this, is such a, a pagan attitude towards God, right? There were the Greek gods that were worshipped, the pantheon of gods. And what you would do is you would gain the favor of the gods so that you could win. You could win at war. You could win at harvest. I mean, the only purpose of the gods uh, was for them to do your bidding. And so you would offer a sacrifice. And Jesus is like, that's not how it works with God. That's not how it works with Yahweh. I mean, that's, that may be how other religions approach their gods, but you don't just get God on your side so you can win at the end of the day, so, so that you can win the game or win the deal or, you know, climb the ladder of success or win in your 401k or win the house that you want or win, win, win the, the beautiful woman that you want to be your wife. Like, are we really reducing God to, to the pantheon of Greek gods? Are we going to treat him like that? Like the only reason we have this quote-unquote relationship with him is so that, so that he can overthrow and so that we can win in the end? Because listen, when things don't go your way and you go through something that's a perceived loss, it's all going to be shaken. It's all going to be shaken. And at the root of it, you've had an assumption of God that has been false the whole time. He's been nothing more than, than the lucky rabbit foot in your pocket, that little good luck charm that you hold on to, the thing that you put around your rear view mirror, that because you have this thing, somehow you have the favor of God, and you know the car will always work, you'll never get a flat tire, the bank will always be full, it will be health, wealth, and prosperity all day long. And, and I mention the word faith movement because this is what fundamentally it does. It reduces God to one of the many false gods that are worshipped in this world. And if you don't believe that that's the case, check out what, what he says. So he deals with this issue of his mission. What was his mission? To live his life perfectly, to be sacrificed for the sins of humanity, to be raised on the third day and to, the, to ascend to the right hand of the Father so that those who believe in him could experience heaven on earth, the fullness of God in their life. He doesn't end there, verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father 
with the holy angels. So listen, three stages here. Stage number one, who is he? Messiah, you got that right. Stage number two, what was his mission? His mission was not to establish an earthly political government. It was to bring the kingdom of God into the hearts of men and women. That was his mission. Stage number three was a revelation about their mission. It was a revelation about their mission. He's saying, hey, by the way, listen, the mission that I'm on is the same mission that you're on. Not in the sense of, you know, other people dying for the sins of humanity, but the path that he walked was the same path that we are called to walk as well. I mean, this must have been earth-shattering for the disciples. In a way, he is saying to them, what's true for me is also true for you. You have these assumptions that there's just going to be this, you know, political powerhouse that's established, and you're going to be living as, you know, my my right and my left hand, fulfilling what it is that I desire you to do. But the truth is this, this path that I've chosen is the same path that you're going to walk as well. And he defines it, he clarifies it. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, if you really want to have a relationship with Messiah, with Messiah, number one, you have to deny yourself. Self-denial. You know, one commentator said this about self-denial. He said, self-denial is not to deny one's personality, uh, it's not to die as a martyr or to deny things as in asceticism, rather it is the denial of self, turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness and every attempt to orient one's life by the dictates of self-interest. I thought that was, that was so good. I just want to read that last sentence. Rather it is the denial of self, turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness and every attempt to orient one's life by the dictates of self-interest. So, so listen, in other words, if we're going to follow Christ, you know, we need to follow in his footsteps and deny ourselves just as he denied him, his self. In other words, we're not orienting our lives around what is in our best interest. We orient our lives around what is in God's interest for us. It's not about God, what, what it, what I, this is what I want, and so this is what I want you to do. It's about, God, what do you want, because I want to live a life that's obedient to you. Somebody say amen to that tonight. So he says, deny yourself. He says, pick up your cross. Um, this was absolutely new terminology for the first century Jew. I mean, there was no Jewish corollary to this. It was a new way of seeing life. In in. The minds of the people of the day, when they heard, pick up your cross, all they thought of was an individual submitting to the power and to the will of Rome. And so it was a person that was coming under the authority of something. Well, in a Christian context, we're talking about submitting to the will of our loving Father and his unique purpose and plan for our life. And oftentimes, that purpose includes pain as a way that God fulfills his divine desires within us. And so when we say pick up our cross, we're talking about submitting ourselves to the perfect will of God that's disclosed in his word, but then also that unique plan that he has for each of our lives. And sometimes that includes adversity. And sometimes that includes difficulty. You know, sometimes when Rachel and I are walking through something difficult, we'll remind each other, hey, this is, a, this is part of the cross that that God's called us to bear. Like these adversities and these challenges and, and these people issues or these financial struggles or 
you know, these things in ministry that may not be coming to pass, we need to accept these things as part of God's plan for our life. Are you yielded to, are you submitting to the perfect plan of God for your life? And by the way, it is perfect because his thoughts towards you are good. They're for good and not for evil. The final thing he says here is this, follow me. So as a believer in Christ, you're not on your own. You're not trudging out your own course. You are following in the footsteps of the master and his mission has become your mission. You are marching along with him to ultimately be a part of him fulfilling his divine purpose, which is to bring the kingdom of God here on earth, in, like I said, in the hearts and minds of men and women. He goes on to elaborate in this, and he gives some amazing comparison and contrast. And let me just, you know, let me just put these in my own words. He, he says, essentially, to save your life will really mean to lose your life, but to lose your life for my sake in the gospel means that you will save your life. Sometimes people think, man, I'd put my trust and faith in Christ, but you know, I, 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 just th- I think about all I'm going to lose. And you know, it's actually the opposite. When you put your trust and faith in Christ, you lose the bad and you gain the good. He says, essentially, you can have the whole world, but in having the whole world, you'll lose your soul. And when I think about that particular saying of Christ, it's just such a solid reminder that the collective value of everything the world has to offer does not even come close to the value of a single soul. How valuable is your soul? Well, you can take all the diamonds and the rubies and the emeralds and all of the Bitcoin and the Ethereum and you can take, you know, all of the cash and, you know, whatever it is and you can accumulate it all together and it doesn't even come close to the value of your single soul. You say, well, man, that's just pastoral hyperbole. You know, you're just talking in an exaggerated sense. How do you know that that's the case? Well, I know it's the case because God gave his son. God proved that that was the case because Jesus died for our sins. And then the third thing, you know, in my own words here that he says is this, you can resist the shame of knowing Jesus and share in the glory of the world or Christ can be ashamed of you and you will lose the eternal glory of the Father. Like we do not want to align ourselves on the wrong side of the equation. I read these words of Christ and I think, man, he speaks in such stark terms, right? I mean, these are, these are solid, strong, black and white terms. And, you know, it like begs the question, why was he so stark in his terminology and I think part of the reason is this, because you can't negotiate your way around this. You can't negotiate your way around what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And sometimes this is what we want to do. We're like, you know, we want to negotiate with God. We're like, well, you know, can I have a part of the world? I got, okay, you know, I want to live my life for you, and I want to live my life for the gospel, but I'd like to kind of save it at the same time, and and I know my soul has value, but can I just have some of the world? And you know, we bargain with God and we negotiate with God. And you know, negotiating with God is the language of the devil. I want to encourage us tonight as we kind of put a punctuation point on this teaching. Um, and I say this to you, I say it to me, I say it to us. Stop negotiating with God. Stop negotiating with God. Stop trying to have The best of both worlds. Stop trying to put one foot in the world and one foot in your relationship with God. You will ultimately, you and I, will be the most miserable person on the face of the earth. 
And you know, we're, we're, we're professionals at justifying sin. And so we will sort out all sorts of ways to figure out and to pacify our conscience so we're in a place where we think we can have both at the same time. And what Christ is saying in these words, and listen, they're his words, not mine. They're his words, not mine. And I don't think there's any other way to read this than the way that we've read it. But what he is saying is you can't have both. It is either all of me or none of me. And that is honestly the most freeing place to come to in your life when you just once and for all lay your whole soul bare at the foot of the cross and declare to him, Lord, here I am, all of me. I'm not holding back a piece. I'm not holding back a part. I'm not holding on to something in this world that, that is an idol in my life. I want everything that you have for me in this life and I want to be prepared for the life to come. If there's been some negotiating and bargaining with God going on in your life, and you've been trying to work it out, how you can have a little bit of everything, tonight he is saying to you, you're more valuable to him than that. You're more valuable. He has a jealous love for you, and that means that he wants all of you. And you know, honestly, I think about that, and if you know, we see ourselves correctly. It's like, man, how could you even want, how could you want me? You know me. You know, you know the failures and the struggles and you know the ugly side and all of the baggage and yet that is the love of God for you just as you are tonight. And so you can come to him and you can find that peace and you can find that healing and you can find that restoration. You can find that joy. You can find that wholeness, not because you have the world, but because you have him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the scriptures tonight, and, and we pray that you would help us. Maybe for some of us tonight, this has just been a, a part of the revelation. We know that you're Messiah, but this whole aspect of discipleship and belonging to you and our identity and giving you everything is really not something that we have fully understood and yet tonight we read, we read what it is that you have said and we have the opportunity this, this evening to be obedient, to follow, to say yes, to choose. And tonight, tonight the worship team is up here and like we are not going to make a... a show or performance out of this but I just in this moment of prayer uh, I just think that we need to be raw and transparent before God we need to we need to have a minute to digest this you know to really digest this we didn't just come in to get a teaching dumped on us. We came in tonight to hear him and to respond. Each of us has to respond to this in a different way. And, and I've said a lot tonight, and maybe now the moment is to just let it sink in, to let it sink in, to let the Spirit of God search our hearts. You know, it's easy for us to cover 
the unseemly areas of our lives. It's easy for us to be busy and just uh, to pass over those things and to ignore them, and, and yet they matter to the Lord. And so tonight, let's, let's just give him this time and space to reveal to us and to show us areas where we've been bargaining. I've just for some reason on my mind tonight, maybe, maybe, you know, you are involved in a relationship and it's just not good. It's not healthy. It's not right. It's not honoring to God. And you have a need in your life that, that you, it's a real need that, that you believe is being met, but you've been bargaining with God and And he's been calling you to to let this go. And to find his sufficiency in your heart to meet that need for this moment. To trust in him. He has a plan for your life. It gets revealed over the course of time. And don't step in and try to do God's job for him. Tonight, let's let the Holy Spirit just search our hearts and, and then this evening is, as he reveals to us those things that need to be confessed and repented of, those burdens that we've been carrying that need to be rolled over to him. The assumptions that have been broken that have shaken our faith I don't know what it is tonight but I know God will show you and just release that to him in prayer and choose to trust in him choose his path his way and then you know in your time of prayer I want to encourage you to, as we wrap it up, just give God praise. Tonight, if you do need prayer, we're, we're going to have some of our follow-up team over on my right side, your left side. They're going to be available to pray for you tonight. And let's just let the Lord minister to our hearts.